podcast this week it's another jam-packed bumper-sized affair as we talk to a whole bunch of incredible guests. As Elvis Presley once sang, that's the wonder, oh the wonder of Q. <laughs> yes, it's Florence Pugh and Sebastian Lelio, star and director of The Wonder. Then there's Irish rising star Bajasis and Bigora. So there is Paul Mescal, star of Aftersun. Maybe what? half an hour in heaven before the devil knows you're dead. And we're visited by two of the spirits of the new Christmas Carol adaptation, Spirited, Will Ferrell, and Octavia Spencer. All that and more on the movie podcast that has come down with a severe sore throat and is on the verge of losing its voice, so has roped in Siri to read the opening intro instead, with hilarious results. We're sure you'll agree. Ha ha. Tee Lol now take a pause Siri before saying the next bit. No Siri don't read that bit out. Good God. <laughs> what am I paying you for hello pod I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I am mostly sick with the dreaded lurgy, so I am going to go and lie down now and leave you in the capable hands of Helen O'Hara. Helen, it's over to you. Don't fuck it up. Wait, I didn't ask Siri to say that. Oh God, the machines are becoming self-aware. Good God. Good God. And, and now go, Helen, go. And okay. this is actually what Thanks, I sound Chris. like. So, yes. Yes. Bye, I'm going to lie go down. Go to bed, Chris. Bye. Go. Go take your painkillers and go. You fool. I'm going to fly. I'm going to fly real high. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, that was Chris Hewitt. I am Helen O'Hara, and welcome once again to the Empire podcast, uh, brought to you this week by suspected tonsillitis, <laughs> I suppose. Um, so thank God we are not all in the same small germ-filled mm. room. We are recording remotely today. So if you hear strange noises in the background, that's the weird man outside my window doing something with... I don't know, machinery or something. It's a very unclear. Um, or it might be the noise of a cinema in central London, or it might be whatever ha is happening outside Amon's house. Because joining me today are two colleagues of such lethal cunning, the best-dressed man currently in his home, Amon Warman. <laughs> I'm not even sure if that's true right now. Full, full disclosure, <laughs> I'm in a hoodie, I'm in the comfort of my own room, and thus I have not dressed up like I normally would, even for an occasion as distinguished as the Empire podcast. Mm -hmm. Hello, everybody. Uh -huh. <laughs> Maybe hello, we should hello. change it to be the dressed man. <laughs> he does I mean, have we, clothes we on. Hope, we hope. We can't see his bottom half, nor do we want to, just to be clear. Um, but yes, uh, you just heard him, but uh, also joining us is the host of the 90 Minutes or Less slash Fewer pod and a long-standing friend of the podcast to the point where he has loaned him on equipment when necessary. Please welcome Sam Clements. Joining us hello. from, please explain where you are, Sam. Uh, hello, thank you for having me. I'm actually recording this at the Ritzy Cinema in South London, Ooh. in Brixton. Uh, I had a meeting with the cinema earlier, and uh, and I thought, you know what? Cinema screens are soundproof, right? <laughs> Rather than like sitting in a cafe in Brixton with all the clatter, I'm just going to go into screen five at the Ritzy, and uh, there's no film in here until 12.45, so that is how long I have to record the podcast. <laughs> oh God, okay, uh, so that's a ticking mm -hmm. clock, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll try and get ev through everything. To be clear, there are a bajillion and one uh, films to review today. It is a, an extremely busy week in your local cinema. If you have not already planned to go to the cinema and see A Million and One Things this weekend, well, you need to change your plans and get on that because there's a lot of good stuff out this week. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. That is for further down the line. Right now, we are, of course, taking a question from readers. So this one comes from at S underscore 
Andre, E-N-D-R-E, um, and he, at, or she, I don't know, uh, asks, what fictional movie company would you most like to buy just so you can ruin it afterwards? Now, we had a lot of variations on this question. I feel like it might possibly be prompted by something in the news by some, I don't know, richest man in the world who might have bought, I don't know, some kind of social network and then be making, I don't know, boneheaded decisions about that network. You know, you'll have to fill in the blanks yourself. I'm not going to do it for you. But um, but yeah, which fictional company would you like to buy and then basically run into the ground? <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting question. Um, I have a couple of answers, though. Uh, do it. There's one which immediately sprung to mind because I am me and I love chicken and therefore Los Polos Hermanos uh, would be one company which I'd love to buy. I still have my chicken slow cooked to perfection. I'd probably run it into the ground by trying to, like, you know, the, the Gus Fring has got his side hustle with the drugs. I, I, I'd sell it. I'd, I'd sell everything. And, and, and anything they have a shortage, shortage of, I got you. I'd probably get found out at some point. But that is probably how I'd run it into the ground. But I still have my slow cut to perfection chicken. So I'd be okay with that. That's one answer. The second answer I have, you know, I was trying to think of something which, if I were if I were to run it into the ground, it wouldn't have much of an impact on the rest of the world, on reality itself. Therefore, Cyberdyne is a company that I'd love to buy. <laughs> you know, and I I know exactly how I'd run this into the ground because I would just abuse it to the point where it would just break down. Late on a deadline, no problem. Time travel. Screaming clash, no problem. Time travel. Junket clash, no problem. Time travel. At some point, that would catch up to me, I think, and we'll do everything. But my goodness, I would love to own Cyberdyne. Those are my answers. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, also, I mean, I was kind of thinking more if you were owning Cyberdyne that maybe you could stop the apocalypse rather than I wouldn't have to worry about I mean, missing priorities, junkets. Priorities, <laughs> Helen. You know, there's junkets, there's meanings, <laughs> and then there's saving the world. That's what it is. I feel yeah. like with something like Cyberdyne and maybe like, you know, like the famously evil companies that are in film sometimes, like the Umbrella Corporation from those movies, Cyberdyne Systems, etc. Maybe like a change of business. So rather than being, you know, building zombies or, you know, warmongering machines, kids play areas, <laughs> you know, ball pools, paddle pools, anything with a pool in it. Just like, you know, like totally turn the concept on its head. And I sort of would like to see, you know, like a really fun, cuddly sort of thing with Cyberdyne systems on just for the lols. <laughs> so I think if whatever I do, and I feel like maybe the reason we're doing this question is because some, you know, billionaire is doing, uh, you know, he's, he's taking, uh, taking some risks for the lols. <laughs> I feel like that would be, you know, in, in keeping <laughs> with where this question came from. Yeah. Okay. So Cyberdyne's target number one for you. I mean, also, you know, thinking along the same lines, Wayland Utani should presumably mm, be in yes. our sights. Um, we could maybe put something in the corporate governance, and I'm just spitballing <laughs> here, saying no experimentation on alien life. You know, maybe I don't know. Don't feed people to the xenomorph might be a cool <laughs> thing to put into the company guidelines. Yes, it could have an effect on the bottom line, but. I don't know. It might also be a good thing to to just lay that out clear in black and white, possibly. <laughs> I, I had an idea um, 
maybe somewhere between those two. I would I would like to take over Gringotts Wizarding Bank and make it a social <laughs> enterprise. Make it a co-op. Why are the goblins hoarding all that gold? You know, let's give it back to the people. You know, and it'll be a responsible. I don't know. Maybe it's like a buildings and loan sort of place. But you know, it's all about the people and and helping people build a home. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn that capitalist establishment. <laughs> you might be on some shaky ground there because wasn't there a whole thing about goblin culture really depending on control of those resources and it being very tied up in their you know their nature i i, I feel like there's some there's some thorny issues there <laughs> Maybe we should have a staff meeting with all the goblins. But I feel like a lot of them probably don't want to be accountants and bankers. They oh. might want to be artists and uh, home That's builders true. or go That's to a trade. Who knows what they want to do? So, you know, maybe this will be a way to enable them to not just go into the rigid, I'd want my dad and my dad before him and mm. his dad before him sort of job. Let's get the goblins out there. Goblin liberation then is what you're up for. It's Goblin Liberation Front. Maybe it's a front for the Goblin Liberation Front. I, I want to read San Clements' Harry Potter books. That's, that's, what, that's what I want to do. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Get writing, Sam. There are two seasonal companies that I'd quite like to to run into the ground. One is Shoppers Express. Now, I don't know if you remember the 1994 Miracle on 34th Street, but that was the evil department store mm. um, led by, I think, Josh, Josh Ackland uh, that uh, wanted to kind of do down Gimbals, wasn't it? Gimbals with the uh, with with Santa, um, and uh, and similarly, BZ Toys. BZ Toys, I'm sure we all remember from Santa Claus the movie. <laughs> that was John Lithgow's company that made, quite frankly, shoddy, shoddy toys. Now, do I need to run these into the ground when their current CEOs are doing such a magnificent job of it? <laughs> no, but then the same argument could be made for Twitter. So, you know, I feel like I could just hasten that along and um, and at least try and maybe do some good along the way. So, so that would be my other answer, apart from as I say, Wayland Yutani. It just feels like there's quite a lot of scope for very, very bad companies in movie history that we could profitably, in the sense of morally profitably, run into the ground. Like it, or, or just, you know, go and see some screenings. I'm on. <laughs> I have to say, I, feel, I shouldn't have gone first. <laughs> you guys have been so nice. You know, it's like you know, helping out the world. more. I'm like, you know, self-serving. Uh, so yeah. Apologies. <laughs> Are there any any sort of like characteristically evil companies that should probably stay evil for that like movie universe to exist? I was thinking Spectre, not a great business, but <laughs> without Spectre, you don't have the James Bond movies, and they're great. And Bond will have nothing to do, literally nothing to do so without Spectre. Like well, to. I'd like to change my answer. I'd like to change my answer. Yes, let's get rid of Spectre. Also, I mean. Uh, did did you buy that? I am the architect of all your pain. Come on, come on. Spectre's got to have something better to do than mess with one British spy. Like whatever, dude. It's the most elaborate prank, costing billions. <laughs> or is it? Elon Musk might argue with that. So perhaps, perhaps you have hit upon the right answer after all. Um, okay. Well, look, I think we've dealt brilliantly, uh, superbly, just just definitively with that question. Um, but if you would like to get in touch with us. Uh, best to step into the howling wastelands of Twitter, where armies of weird Musk fans roam, waiting for you to criticise him in any minor way, uh, and get in touch with us either at Empire Magazine, um, use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or just you know straight up send it to Chris at Chris Hewitt. All right, we have a very 
stacked, stacked week for guests. So let's start with one of the buzzier stars of the last few years. Paul Mescal, for it is he, burst onto the scene in TV's Normal People and set an entire nation afire with his gold chain somehow. <laughs> uh, now he's back in Charlotte Wells' extraordinary film, After Sun, playing a young father who takes his 11-year-old daughter, played by newcomer Frankie Corio, on holiday to Turkey. Uh, now, we're going to be reviewing it later, but suffice to say, it's one of the most moving films you're going to see this year. And we sent Ella Kemp along to talk to Paul and find out more about it. Please enjoy. I know that After Sun, as we know, isn't the most cheery film in the world, mm -hmm. but I have many questions for you about certain things that are cheery. Great. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going we're gonna to make it work. I have a laugh. Yeah, great. <laughs> That's what we do when we talk about After Sun. We just, yeah, we just we have just a nice laugh. time. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> before, I'm just saying that to set you up to get to get hyped for that. Um, because before we... Very are you hyped. hyped? Yeah, I'm hyped. Yeah. Fantastic. Before we do that, uh, I want to rewind a little bit, because I think for a lot of Empire listeners... Um, they might be most familiar with you having seen you in Normal People, mm -hmm. um, which was is beautiful and so, so, so upsetting uh, in many ways. I'm wondering what kind of through line, if any, you see from Normal People to After Sun. Obviously, they're different characters and stories, but they both kind of make you feel a bit similar, I think. Yeah, I think it is important to say that I feel much less depressed as Paul than I think Connell or Callum is. So um yeah, I I I feel like the feel you kind of hit the nail on the head that the feeling that I think people are left with is from from normal people and um after sun is pretty similar. And I don't really know how to define that other than sad, but it's obviously far more I feel I would hope that it's more complicated and more nuanced than just sad. But I think that's the feeling that people are left with. Yeah. How does it make you feel to know that you're making people feel so sad? Uh, satisfied. Do you sleep? Does it help you sleep at night? <laughs> it helps me sleep at night that I'm causing emotional damage across the world, hopefully. Yeah, it's, it's very satisfying. <laughs> no, but actually, truthfully, I think it is satisfying. I think if people like, I think if it's a comedy and people are laughing, that would also be satisfying. But the fact that this is, and normally was a drama, I think it's really satisfying that people are moved by it and to have uh, any uh, attachment to that gives me great satisfaction. Yeah. Has it made you crave comedies now? No, I would love to be, I, I think I'd love to do a com comedy at some point. And, but I don't know if I, it's, I don't know. It's like, I don't think it's innately my sensibility to make people laugh. Like, I don't think I'm the person. You don't think you're funny? I don't, I, I don't think I'm like the person that like at the dinner table, like say if there was like eight of us at dinner, I would be the person laughing at other people's stories rather mm. than the person making people laugh. Um, so I wouldn't say on my like spotlight profile that I would say funny. I would say yes. sad. <laughs> <laughs> Do 
Do you have a list of drop down emotions you can pick for Spotlight when um, yeah. casting directors are looking for you? When it can be like, is good at surprised, is, is good, good at romantic, surprise, is good, good at romantic, really good at sad. Yeah, like I put like gold star sad, like level 10, like you know, those like stage combat. Mm. you see people have gone through and mm-hmm. like rapier and dagger and like i'd be like well trained and sad acting it would be uh my thing <laughs> i don't know you know sometimes they name awards after certain actors or directors uh-huh. yeah i feel like i feel like this is what you're leading towards here mm-hmm. like oh, they could name sad. a sad award a sad after award you. Yeah, I mean, that's the dream. That's what I'm in it for. It's just if I can have an award named after my uh, representation of Sun. Yeah. But when you were shooting After Sun, uh, yeah. in which you start opposite the, uh, she's now 13 years old, I believe. Um, 12, 13. The brilliant young teenager. You start opposite Frankie Corio, uh, who has a first ever acting role in this film and is amazing. Mm-hmm. as your character's uh, young daughter, Sophie. Um, how did you go about making her feel comfortable on set and making her laugh as, you know, it's her first time doing this thing? He, yeah, like Frankie is a genius. I think Frankie, um, like I've said, like it's like, it's boring to me to say, because I feel like I've said it a hundred times, so I'll say it fast. Like we got to spend like two weeks together before filming and we got to hang out and we played by the pool and, all of like like I suppose the thing that is maybe exceptional to that is that I've never had two weeks with any other actors before to kind of just hang out I think it's really was really beneficial to the filming process um but like Frankie's like a friend of mine now so it's like it was one of those experiences where you're just watching somebody starting out and I feel like I'm new or relatively new to this industry, but watching somebody like brand new be so brilliant um, and kind of be just waiting for an audience to see it is really, really satisfying. But yeah, she, I think she's an incredibly talented actor. What were the ways in particular, like, did you manage to make her laugh in between times? Yeah, that was, that was, I feel like I was all, like, I'm always like, dads really aren't that embarrassing as everybody just says dads. Like, but I found great joy in um, being an embarrassing fake dad to Frankie. Like, so there's a, a, there's a dance move in particular that Frankie despised and would physically cringe whenever I would do it. And it's actually in the, like, there's a, under pressure sequence at the end of the film where I put my hands on my hips and thrust in multiple directions. And that was the go-to make Frankie laugh and cringe at the same time. Yeah. Was that a pull move or a Callum move? It was, it was, a, it was initially a Paul because it was a Paul move that unfortunately was very dad-esque. So yeah, it was, it was a poem move that ended up being a Callum move. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it sounds like you've really been leaning into the dadness of it all. Mm-hmm. As I heard you say that um, you also copied Frankie's dad in order to get your Scottish accent down, which is not your usual accent. Yeah. Yeah. I think 
Frank, Frankie's dad became a reference just because we were hanging out quite a bit. Like, so we would, like after me and Frankie would get to hang out, essentially I was adopted into the Corio family um, and we would hang out in the evenings and Frank um, was around. And I, I, I don't know if I fit, like, like really used him as a reference, but I think there was bits of um, him that I stole and put in there. I couldn't really tell you what, but he, he would have. It's like one of those things that my parents are probably in Callum, but I couldn't tell you where. And I would say the same is true of Frank. What was your most satisfying word to say in a Scottish accent? Serious, I would say. Um, I just like the way they say serious. It's like <laughs> nice. Yeah. I feel like it fits with everything we've been talking about. That much checks out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you are from that. That's it. You walked into that one. I, I didn't. I want you didn't even team me up for that. I just <laughs> that's yeah, that's it. Fucking upset. Oh, you have this knack for surrounding yourself with incredible female geniuses. Mm-hmm. I mean, also The Lost Daughter, directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, After Sun, directed by Charlotte Wells. Is there anything of a kind of like a, a conscious choice when you're, you know, working with all these incredible female storytellers as much actors as directors and everything, or is it just something that happens? Like the truthful answer is, I think some people should be making more conscious choices, but I, the, the, like that's just my opinion but I don't think that anything felt like to me was like I need to work with these directors because they are women I or these actors because they're women I think they were just the directors that I was most impressed with and they were they were working on the scripts that I wanted to do so politically I wasn't making a decision because of gender it was actually just because they were the best directors in front of me at that moment and the directors that I most wanted to work with yeah has it I mean having done a few of these projects they're all obviously very different but you know have similar kind of voices involved has it made you kind of rethink the kind of roles that you want to choose or is it still kind of you know if this script is good it's it is kind of that I think I'm starting to feel an itch of like maybe more genre stuff but I, I haven't ever had a set plan to date and I'm happy with how it's all kind of panning out at the moment. So, I, I, yeah, I think there is a kind of maybe, maybe, maybe it's a fear that I know we've jokingly kind of talked about like serious, sad <laughs> actor. And that is something that I think an audience could potentially grow tired of. Um, and I don't want to be as much as I'm proud, really proud of the work that people have responded to, I don't want to get pigeonholed into like indie sad boy territory. So I, I do feel in a desire to maybe broaden out a little bit. But having said all that, if the only films that I got to make were um, challenging indie dramas, that's I hope will be my bread and butter for all for for always forever yeah it's yeah. a pretty nice bread and butter to have that is a that is a that's a very tasty bread and butter thing 
That's my um, attempt at being funny, failing at being funny. Oh, look, it's great. I, that was a laugh you heard. Oh, look at that. He didn't he do well there. Fair play to him. Oh, dear. I'm not going to ask you any more questions about being a sad um, person who acts. Um, but I would like to ask about certain films that you like. Yeah. Um, are you much of a crier when you watch films? Yeah, I think I've become more of a crier the more... Uh, the older I've gotten in my old age, I've probably cried more. I, I, I don't like change. To say if I have time to like sit down and watch something, I often find that I'm, I struggle to like not go back and watch something that I've already seen because I know it. What's the one you've watched the most? What's the one I've watched the most? Blue Valentine. Mm-hmm. Which that's, is that's so heavy. So watch. Maybe it's not the one that I've watched the most. No, it's fine it's, if it is. I'm not, I'm not judging you. I'm just I'm gonna just say something like Step Brothers, which is a total <laughs> lie because I want people to think that I laugh more and that I I'm actually okay. I'm very okay. I'm I one more time. I'm fine. Sure, cool. <laughs> I'm fine. Oh dear. Um, but I do think. I do think After Sun has a similar power in terms of I can imagine a lot of people rewatching it many times. Um, I've watched it twice and I miss it. I want to watch it again mm-hmm. already. How much have you had to think or chosen to think about who you would like to watch the film, if anyone in particular? I think... I, like I, I actually don't think there's like... I think there's a really broad market for this film in terms of anybody who has a healthy, like any person who has a healthy or unhealthy relationship with their parents can watch this film and have a, I think, pretty moving response. Anybody who has children can have, and I think that like covers a vast um, portion of the um, world's population. But I think it's also important to say that like it is, What's so satisfying about it is that this is a is a small independent film that is having uh, that people are having a str- strong response to, and you look at something like the worst person in the world from like last year or something like that, and I feel like it could potentially operate in that kind of way this year. And for people who like independent film, it's really satisfying to know that there is still an appetite for it because i think um that space is being compressed and compressed and we need to continue fighting the good fight and protecting directors like charlotte wells and people and directors like that because ultimately i think if i get to make another film like after sun again in my life i'd be really proud like i think oh if everything went really well. I think After Sun would still be one of the things that I'll be proudest of forever. There is obviously, there's an incredible scene in After Sun I will not spoil, but related to said scene, um, I would like you to tell me if you have a go-to karaoke song, please. Right. I, this is not going to be the answer that anybody wants, but I hate karaoke with a passion, with a strong passion. I feel like that's in line with the character description that yeah. we so 
we mind quite effectively is I don't really like having fun in my personal life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Karaoke gives me great anxiety. I think I'd much rather sit in a pub with my friends and talk Mm -hmm. rather than be in a closed booth with people singing like poorly and at each other or screaming at each other like a like a Miley Cyrus song or something yeah when's the last time you were made to do karaoke I did it when I was doing a play in Dublin and it was actually a fun night but probably scarring in some way that I've never done it since which was about four years ago now three four years ago it was my one and only time doing it. What fair. did you sing? I sang the uh, the climb. The <laughs> that's yeah, that was. That. Sorry, from Hannah Montana, the movie. Correct. <laughs> Correct. That's that was the that was the one by Miley Cyrus. Cool. So that I wasn't just yeah. yeah. Okay. That 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 reference didn't slip in there by accident. No. It's a, a emotional recall. Um, yeah. Yeah. Never again. Awesome. I mean, what a way to go. Yeah. Think, yeah. <laughs> what a way to go. Yeah. Cool. Um, <laughs> I think that about concludes our time on the Empire podcast. Great. Well, thank, thank you, you so much, much for joining us. Thank and uh, we will never make you do karaoke. Thank you. Much appreciated. Of course. All right. Time now for some movie news. Um, and there has been quite a lot this week. So what do you got for us? We have to start with the trailer for John Wick. Chapter four, which broke right after we concluded the podcast recording last week. Uh, I actually, I sent a message that went unanswered that we should reconvene the pod so we could talk about it. Nobody said anything, but I'm going to talk about it now because this trailer is awesome. Two minutes. It's amazing. Plus of just awesome. I can't wait to see this footage um, on the big screen. You got Donnie Yen fighting Keanu Reeves. If the trailer was just 10 seconds of that, I'd be like, Take my money now. But it also has a ton of other really cool stuff. Got the ton of Ian McShane, of Lance Reddick, as one of my favorite characters in the entire franchise. I hope, I hope he gets given even more to do than he got given in the in the last last film. Last film was cool to mm-hmm. see him actually sort of grab a gun and throw down. I want more for that guy because Lance Reddick plays him fantastically. Um, and yeah, it feels like they're upping the ante yet again. So between this and the TV series spinoff, I'm just really excited to return to this world. Look, looks great. And Ballerina, the, right. the other spinoff, got a poster this week, a gorgeous looking poster. So um, so that's pretty exciting as well. That's, of course, the Anna de Armas film. And they have confirmed that Keanu will be appearing in that as well. But yeah, this this gave me everything I want in life, which is basically Keanu Reeves in a suit with a gun <laughs> running around world cities. Yeah. And that, great. Yep. 10 out yeah. of 10. No yeah. notes. Um Fantastic. Um, It wasn't the only uh, trailer this week. We also got Magic Mike's Last Dance, um, which basically (laughs) appears to be a let's put on the show right here. Um, (laughs) He gets bankrolled by Salma Hayek, um, who seems to be uh, unhappily married or possibly unhappily divorced. But either way, not super happy um, until Magic Mike (laughs) comes along and they decide to put on... Well, he has that effect. What can I tell you? Um, he, uh, yeah, they decide to put on a show in London in in a theater which is made up, but is a West End theater. And yeah, here we here we go. Um, it looks like even more gyrating than normal. 
Now with 10% more gyrating. (laughs) I'm glad this film's happening. XXL was such a good movie. Magic Mike Mm. XXL from, was it 2015? We've waited a while for for this last Mm. dance. (laughs) And Soderbergh is directing. Is that the Soderbergh is back in the director's chair. Of course, he did produce the last one. He was still very heavily Mm -hmm. involved. But yeah, back to round out the trilogy. Um, And presumably, this is the finale of a trilogy. Otherwise, it's weird naming. (laughs) <laughs> Save the last last dance. <laughs> they they yeah. can totally do that. Don't don't underestimate film companies. They don't. Trilogy is a trilogy is a longer thing. Than oh yeah. Now. But uh, but I I would I would not have predicted uh, after the first Magic Mike that we'd get three of these. But here we are. Uh, but yeah, it looks, it looks a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot of very attractive people in that trailer. That that that's that's my hot take for the day. Will anything be better than the Cheeto scene from XXL? I want to see if this film can top that <laughs> that oh. scene and now that famous oh. gif. Yeah. yeah. No, nothing, I think, in, in cinema history has been significantly better than that scene. I feel like that's up there with like portals. You know, it's up there with the chess <laughs> in the seventh seal. It's up there with the burning of Atlanta and gone with the wind. It's, it's, it's you know, it's of that stature, right? I mean, just incredible. I, I hope that Joe Manganiello makes a comeback. Just even if it's a cameo, I want to see him in this film. Put him in the post credit scene. Just do something yeah. with that guy. Put him in the audience uh. eating Cheetos. Boom. Job done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Very exciting uh, news. Also very exciting and and very intriguing is the, the news that Kaylee Spaney is in talks to star in a new Alien movie. So. Um, Fede Alvarez, um, who made the Evil Dead remake, very a very good remake as these things go, got the nod from Ridley Scott to do a new film in the series, and he's now beginning casting. So Kaylee Spaney was in The Craft Legacy. She's apparently in talks to star. It apparently won't be a direct sequel to the David films, the Prometheus and Covenant films, um, but will be obviously in the same universe. Uh, as alien so xenomorphs of course um but but yeah we don't know much more about it how do you feel about this how are you how are you how are you coping guys i mean alien covenant was definitely a film that existed but the exciting news about fede alvarez (laughs) taking on this one i i think that's great his last the girl with the dragon tattoo film he made not a great movie but his evil dead reboot was wonderful i think and i'm i'm talking to you guys from the ritzy in brixton now we had fede alvarez here for a q a which i hosted uh hey. with him in this very cinema well you know was it nine years ago or whatever so i feel like maybe this could be the big break that you know fede alvarez wonderful director give him a big property give him a big canvas let's see what he can do it'll be gritty and gory right like mm. that guy loves a bit of gore <laughs> I would say, right? I mean, and, and it kind of has to be to to be an alien movie. I think, you know, if one of the criticisms that people made of of the uh, the prequels was maybe that there was a lot of style over gore. And there's some gore, you know, and and, and it's not that they they haven't been a gore enterprise per se. There's always been a lot of style there as well, but maybe the balance shifted for some people. Maybe there was too much of the kind of mythology of the alien and not enough of hiding round corners from big scary beasts. So maybe this is a big scary beast film. Maybe. We don't really know much about it yet, but um, it should be shooting next year. So that's not too far away now. So there might be some more details that kind of come out over time. And, uh, you know, Spainy seems like an interesting choice for that. She's a good actress, I think. Um, I shouldn't yeah, have. Definitely. Yeah, I shouldn't have maybe 
put people off her by saying she's she was in the the craft legacy. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and probably many many other wonderful films as well. Other many um, many other wonderful films. I, I'd like to think this might maybe go back to basics a bit and and just be a bit more of a like a survival horror type film. Yeah. I'm imagining the um, Alien Isolation video game that could be a good comp. Um, they're just like really ratchet up the tension. Uh, yeah, like like first Alien sort of rules. Let's talk about Joseph Quinn. Now, he was the big, big breakout of Stranger Things this season, and he is now joining A Quiet Place Day One opposite Lupita Nyong'o, uh, who, of course, was announced last week. This is beginning to seem like a pretty exciting cast. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love this casting a lot. I really enjoyed Joseph Quinn in the most recent season of Stranger Things, and I'm excited to see what uh, he's going to sort of jump off from that and, and do. And that this is what is sort of in this future is very, very exciting. Lupita, long been a fan. She's great and Wakanda forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we'll see. I, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm intrigued to get more details from this about what is actually going to be the plot of this day. Like how, how much is it going to be focused on that specific day? Is it going to be a build up to it? All that sort of stuff. And yeah, it, it could be really interesting. I like this casting a lot. And it's being directed by Michael Sarnowski, who did Pig. You know, yep. He's great with actors. These are, you know, Lupita and, and and Joseph Quinn. Like this is going to be a just regardless of what the film is actually about. I love all these ingredients, so yeah. I can't wait to see what they do together. Yeah, and John Krasinski is involved. He's not directing, but he, you know, he has he has a hand in this. You know, so it's still kind of going to be part of a coherent universe. Hopefully, that makes sense altogether. I, I personally would be quite interested in seeing a different. Um, setting a little bit, you know, what happens in a city uh, at this point where you don't have, you know, I don't know, trees to hide behind, or you don't have the rustling of trees to cover up tiny movements, and you don't have sand paths <laughs> laid out, you know. So th- I think there there could be some really interesting things to do with this in a new environment. Mm. So, yeah, hyped for it. Um, this will be this will be interesting stuff. Quickly, also, Keanu Reeves is going to star in Jonah Hill's next film, which is called Outcome. Uh, so this is obviously Hill's follow-up to mid-90s, uh, and I, he did a documentary, Stutz, which has just landed on Netflix. So um, this is kind of exciting. Nobody knows the genre. Nobody knows what it's about. This is going to be a short conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of short, mid-90s was under 90 minutes long. So with my 90-minute or less film hat, you know, that's always a film I've wanted to talk about. So if he could get Keanu to be in an under 90-minute picture with his new one, <laughs> you know, I'll be there day one. I'll be in line. Yeah, just just for anybody who doesn't know, and I'm sure you've all listened to it because it's a great pod. But this is your your rule is only films under 90 minutes uh, qualify. Um, so even something, I mean, even when the credits go above 90 minutes, it's a bit dodgy, isn't it? So like, yeah, no, the, the, the credits you know. are part of the film, as we all know. You know, we like yeah. to stay to the end credits and see if there's a stinger or, or something fun. Um, and you know, a lot of people worked on a movie, and it's most true, importantly, 100%. those are included in the runtime on the back of a DVD box. So um, it yeah. just helps so with that admin. Is, <laughs> that is your criterion. Also, look, I we have to talk about something that is going to be important to an entire generation of people out there. The Princess Diaries 3. They're looking to make it happen. Disney is apparently excited about it. Gary Marshall, of course, directed both of the the original two films, um, uh, The Princess Diaries and Royal Engagement, the sequel. Um, But uh, they are now apparently trying to get back to it. So presumably they're trying to get Julie Andrews and Anne Hathaway back. They may or may not be planning excuses why Chris Pine is busy on a state visit somewhere else. Um, 
but but yeah, apparently um, they have uh, godmothered writer Melissa Stack uh, in as an executive producer with the original producer Deborah Martin Chase. Scripting duties are with Adrita Mukherjee, uh, who worked on Supergirl and Reacher, which is, that's a heck of a combo on your CV, <laughs> Supergirl yeah. and Reacher. And Hathaway's, I mean, repeatedly said she's up for more. She hasn't got a deal in place, but she's always said, you know, she loves Mia Thermopolis and she's happy to come back. But we shall see. Princess Diaries 3, I know you guys are huge fans, right? I wish you guys could see the excitement on Helen's face right now. It is so awesome. Oh, it's my sister's generation of films, not me. But I I appreciate that there is a massive audience for this. Yes. When Disney Plus launched in the UK, one of the nice things about it was all of those Disney films, you know, were available. You don't have to buy expensive DVDs or whatever. And uh, I was just going through stuff I'd missed, and I hadn't seen either of them. And I did them back to back. They're wonderful films, you know. They're very I, cute, I, I, right? I, I I would happily watch them again now. And it's it's good news that there's a third one coming. I'm all yeah. for it. It's a very funny comic performance from Anne Hathaway, especially in that first film where she goes from a sort of not quite zero to hero, but she goes from this very kind of unsure, insecure you know, average American high school girl to looking like a princess and feeling like a princess at the end of it. It's a really great piece of comic acting, I think, that maybe doesn't get enough credit because, as we all know, films aimed at teenage girls get no love. Um, but yeah, I'm look, I think I think there's a huge number of people out there that are going to be super, super happy about this. And, um, and yeah, I will absolutely go and watch it. So, hey. Speaking of things that people are happy to see, did you guys uh, watch the Studio Ghibli Lucasfilm collaboration at the weekend. It would have taken you two and a half minutes, three including credits. Uh, I was there. I was waiting on Saturday morning. I think it dropped, um, and uh, it dropped at eight a.m. because that's when Disney updates in the UK. And it was just like this is unbelievable. I'm waiting for the new Ghibli film to drop on Disney Plus. You know, included in my subscription. I don't even have to get out of bed. Um, a wonderful thing. Grogu and the Zen. No, it's called Zen, Grogu and Dust Bunnies, isn't it? That's the, yep. that's the name. And it's just a cute celebration of Grogu and, and Ghibli. And it's got a lovely score um, as well. I had a nice time. I guess it's only a really sm- they, they teased it last week, didn't they? There was a, mm-hmm. a video of the Lucasfilm logo and the Ghibli logo, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, Hayao Miyazaki's going to direct <laughs> yeah. an episode of The Mandalorian or, or you know, something <laughs> far fetched." And uh, and and I kind of it's very Ghibli for this to actually all of that hype and people being very excited. There was a picture of Miyazaki in the background with a little model of Grogu in in the foreground, and and it was kind of nice that actually that was just building up to a almost an animation test like mm. this really cute experimental film like that was the most ghibli outcome i think of all of this stuff <laughs> uh so it's probably baffled a few people who've never maybe seen a ghibli film before or were expecting miyazaki to direct an episode of mandalorian but um mm-hmm. but i just thought it was perfect like that was it was a perfect sort of thing to just drop on a saturday morning yeah absolutely gorgeous I, having said that i do want more like um, this is not enough. Like it was perfect. That's great, but more, please. You know, I'm not very zen, am I? I need to watch it again. Who did the score? Um, <laughs> I'm having a brain. Uh, who did the score for Wakanda Forever? Ludwig Göransson. Uh, yes, yeah, so Ludwig Göransson did the music. Oh my Sorry, gosh. I had a had a brain meltdown. Um, yes, uh, yeah. So it's Ludwig Göransson doing a very, and it's not like you know anything he's done before. It's a brand new piece of music. It's very zen, as the title implies, mm-hmm. and it's got you know there's special thanks and producer credits for Kathleen Kennedy, John Favreau, Dave Filoni. But the most exciting one for me was that longtime Studio Ghibli produ- uh, producer Toshio Suzuki, who's produced every movie, set up the studio with Takahata mm-hmm. and Miyazaki, um, is also a very famous. Um, um, a calligraphy artist and the very final shot spoilers is a piece of calligraphy which is done 
by Suzuki, and that might be Suzuki's first on-screen credit. He legendary producer, set up an animation studio. Now he's on Disney Plus. <laughs> hey, look at that. Anyway, nice. so if you haven't seen that, because it was kind of announced last Friday, I think, as we were recording. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, it is tiny but perfect, and uh, and very highly recommended. Also, very exciting. There's a sequel apparently in early development for RRR. How do you feel about this? Oh wow. I mean, RRR was such a surprise, wasn't it? And mm. um, like one of the ultimate cinema going experiences or Netflix viewing experiences that you can have uh, right now. I don't know if the film needs a sequel, but I'd love to see more you know, from that filmmaking team. Um, and if it's as big as and bombastic as RRR, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, for those who, who haven't seen it yet, it is now on Netflix, so it is easily available. And they're still putting it on in quite a lot of cinemas, you know, here and there. Yes, they are. Um, regularly but it is absolutely worth catching on the big screen if you can it's three hours it's in telugu and it is a musical action epic with some of the most stunning action choreography and and filming that i have ever seen um it is a, an astonishing film about the basically the struggle for indian independence uh from the british who are the bad guys so you know i'm not saying i enjoyed that but i did um so yeah highly highly recommended uh, and uh, fingers crossed that this uh, this sequel finds a reason to exist and certainly that we see more filmmaking of that quality do you think the sequel will be called r r r r <laughs> or sss and then, then ttt like the alphabet trilogy uh you know, that'd be, that'd be wonderful um yeah no i'm, I'm down I, I think whatever uh whatever ss rajamuli wants to do the director um i'm in you know whether it be an episode of mandalorian or a sequel to rr <laughs> that's the bar that's the bar oh by which God. i'm going i'm telling you the way you're going the next season of the mandalorian is going to be lit <laughs> i love that you're trying to give all these people jobs this is fantastic <laughs> if we say it on mic it happens doesn't it that's, that's how it goes. Yeah. Yep. So episode one next season, directed by uh, Miyazaki. <laughs> I mean, it just goes up. Uh, up. Wow, it's going to be amazing. Okay. Um, another uh, intriguing piece of news. Uh, James Gunn and Peter Safran, of course, are now going to be in charge of DC Studios. Uh, the news emerged this week that they are mapping out an eight to ten year plan. What do you think? <sighs> like, <laughs> on the one hand... You know, I when the James Gunn news dropped that he would be sort of in charge of Warner Brothers, I was very happy of, of, of the DC arm of Warner Brothers. I was very happy. I think that is a really good hire for them. Uh, he has experience with the MCU. He's interacted with Feige. He knows what he's doing. I, that's a measure of trust that I have with James that I don't with people in the past when it comes to DC Warner Brothers live action. At the same time, we've heard this eight to ten year plan thing for the last decade, at least three different times, we got another eight ten year plan. We got another ten year plan, and then it all, you know, it's not executed um, well, if at all. So I'm just hoping now, with the stability that hopefully James Gunn is going to bring to DC Warner Brothers, when they say we're mapping out an eight to ten year plan, this is actually an eight to ten year plan that is going to be executed, and we will see the fruits of that labor, and they'll be positive and with high quality and all the rest of it. Um, but just on the basis of it now, having heard this rhetoric so much from the people in charge of this, it just makes you go, here we go again. Mm. But 
Fingers crossed. It's nice to hear they have a plan, because it hasn't felt like the DC Universe has really had a plan. They could have just said, we have a plan, and, and I think everyone would feel a bit better. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's nice that there's someone at the helm, I think, or two people at the helm, who, you know, on paper at least, know what they're doing and, and make really interesting and exciting things, and yeah. maybe they can influence, you know, Warner Brothers, who have just kind of been a bit of a mess the last few years, uh, various changes of ownership over there. Mm. Especially in the last few months. Um, but yes, mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. And I hope that they have a plan. But, you know, I think Marvel has taught everyone that the plan also needs to be flexible. The plan needs mm -hmm. to respond to what works and what doesn't. But um, so I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's flexibility and vision. Um, but, you know, like I say, you know, like you, you both said, you know, James Gunn has has form he knows he seems to know what he's doing um and he's i think really passionate about these characters in this world so that's a very very good start so uh so yeah i we do now have one sad piece of news to finish off with um and i know that this one is is particularly important to him on um but i think is something that's touched anybody who's watched any animated batman and that is the news that kevin conroy passed away this week at the very early age of 66, uh, which came as as a huge loss, I think, to to entire generations of Bat fans. Um, so I'm on. Now is the time. Uh, yeah, now this was shocking and devastating because it felt like Kevin Convoy would sort of outlive us all and voice Batman forever because <laughs> uh, he did it so well. Like he understood the character even before he really knew what he was about there's that story of him in his audition just automatically getting it and they have been auditioning for ages and ages trying to find the guy and then kevin combo walks in and he is the guy without fully sort of knowing all the ins and outs of batman at that point they're having different voices for batman and bruce wayne it was kevin Conroy who really did that first in a big way because he understood that batman wasn't the disguise bruce wayne was the disguise batman as the real character and the way in which that the way in which he vocalizes that all the way through his run, not just in Batman animated series, in Justice League animated series, in Batman Beyond, in the Batman Arkham games, he didn't shy away from the. Like, he could have done Batman at the animated series and been done with it. Like that was an iconic performance in an iconic show, probably number two on my favorite super animated shows of all time. Justice League animated series is number one, and obviously he was. Very oh, really? Much You've never mentioned one. it. <laughs> I, I know, I know, for some reason, but I'm mentioning mention that. Um, but yeah, just, he got Batman's humanity and mm. empathy yeah. and humor, as well as the determination and the gruffness and the badassery. It all felt authentically Batman. It's the most human Batman, I think, that we've ever gotten across any sort of, you know, outside of the comics. That's so Batman in a way that you don't often see mm -hmm. from the character. You get the darkness, you get the badassery, you get the deep voice, all the rest of it. But the humanity, the empathy, a, a lot of it you got to put it to the storytelling, which was almost equal to the performance, but you don't get that character without a Kevin Conroy vocalizing him the way he does. And with all due respect to every other voice actor who's come after him, and some of them have been very, very good, but it always just feels a little bit off to me when it's not Kevin Conroy. Mm. And I love that in the years since the animated series has ended, not only has he gone on to do Batman and so many other projects, but he's never shied away from that role in Comic-Con conventions and with interactions with fans. He has that line he always loves to do, I am vengeance, I am the knight, I am Batman, uh, which is great. But yeah, I'm going to stop talking now, but he, he is the voice that <laughs> will always be in my head 
whenever I read a Batman comic, he's also for me the stand by which every other Batman will be measured. He was the best. To, to I, I wish we'd get even more from him, but the fact that we got as much as we did and it is so good, I'm I'm going to cherish that even more now. Absolutely, and and also a, a, a fantastic human being by all accounts, which is one of the things that came out um, this week as well. So, um, or you know, was was reiterated, I should say, this week. It was not a surprise to anyone. Um, but yes, yeah, so uh, Kevin Conroy, who passed away this week at the age of sixty six. Okay, I'm. A, I feel like we have to raise our spirits slightly, and uh, no better way to do that than to get our Christmas on. And of course, it wouldn't be Christmas without somebody doing a fresh spin on Charles Dickens and a Christmas. Carol. And luckily, that's exactly what we get in Spirited, which is a new musical from Sean Anders that looks at the story of redemption more from the perspective of the ghosts. So Will Ferrell plays the ghost of Christmas Present, who makes it his mission to redeem the awful Clint, who's played by Ryan Reynolds, and Octavia Spencer plays Clint's put-upon executive Kimberly. Now, we sent Chris along prior to his lurgy when he was still a <laughs> safe human being, more or less, to be around uh, to speak to Farrell and Spencer. So please enjoy this interview with Will Farrell and Octavia Spencer. Hey, Will. Hi, hey, Octavia. How's it going? Hi, how are you? Hi. Not too bad. Not too bad. Thank you very much. That's a lovely Christmassy look behind you guys. Oh. Yes, we decorated the set. Yeah. I thought you did. I thought you did. Uh, a... <laughs> and those aren't just props, presents. Those are filled with special gifts that we shopped. <laughs> Actually, it's mostly socks. They're all socks. Socks are the best yeah. gifts to get. Mostly socks. Do you give people presents from that are related to your films in any way, shape, or form? Let's that, that's, that's get into the big questions right off the bat. <laughs> Do do we give them presents that are based on the film? You mean that? Yeah, you know, maybe or well, maybe things that you you know uh, should we say relieved from the set. I'm not going to say the word stole, Octavia, but things that you took no, from the set of movies. No, I never steal. I always okay. tell them I'm taking this with no. me. So <laughs> if if there is a special memento from any sort of set, I'm keeping it. Me too. Yeah, I'm not giving it away. I'm not but giving it away. I will. You know, you you are given a fair amount of swag from mm -hmm. time to time, sweatshirts and whatnot. And I often think, oh, this will make a great gift. My mother will love this. She'll she'll <laughs> love wearing this around Laguna Beach, California. <laughs> or my dad. My dad loves wearing hats so that he can purposely start conversations with people. <laughs> <laughs> He's a cutie. Yeah. He's a cutie. What sort of hats, Will? What, what sort know, of hats stuff? We'll say like the title of the film. Okay. Whatever it is, so that someone will go, what is it? What's your hat say? Oh, this is uh, the latest film my son is working on. Your son is he an actor? Yes. Would I know him? Well, his name is Will Ferrell. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm assuming they're saying, oh, my gosh. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're walking away. They're going, oh, maybe that guy. Maybe they're throwing a drink in his face. Yeah, oh, that guy. yeah I hate him. Octavia, do you use any other members of your family as, as walking billboards the way that Will does? Um, uh, you know, uh, they do like, I forgot about that. Yeah. I was about to say no, but yeah, yeah, they do like the, the, the swag. Once I did a movie where we got lobster claw, uh, uh, oven mitts and, um, my sister loves those. It's like, uh, she uses them she to uses this day. Them. She uses them. So yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. See, acting, acting isn't just about the joy of discovery and discovering new characters. It's about swag. At the end of the day, that's what it's about. It really is, yeah. ultimately. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We love the swag. That's how I choose my scripts. What kind of swag, what kind of swag? will it have? Lobster uh, uh, mitts. Oven mitts? I'm in. 
So I've, I've got to ask, I've got to ask, what was the swag like on Spirited? What, what have you been given on this movie? I love the script cover that was, uh, was stenciled with uh, Spirited. It's hard, the, the hard wooden, oh, maybe, maybe he didn't get it. God, I, don't, I don't think I got that one. <laughs> I don't what? know, that's a bad question. This is awkward. All my questions are bad questions. So. Uh, wasn't there... Was there a Christmas ornament? Oh, there was yeah. an ornament, yeah. And? Uh, Guys, this, this is very disappointing swag. This is a this is an Apple movie. I mean, uh, was uh, it a snow globe? Did there was a maybe snow a snow globe? globe, yeah. Okay. All right. You know, hey-ho. It, it, it was fine. It is what it is. I'm just saying you can you can upgrade the swag on this movie. It, it's, it's fine. It's fine. But if you were to make a fan diagram of your careers, Sean Anders is right in the middle. He's a guy, you know, you've worked with him in, in the past. And uh, I'm wondering, at what point did he raise this film with you both? Did he sidle up to you, uh, you know, at Craft Services on Daddy's Home 2? Or did he have conversations with you, Octavia, on Instant Family going, hey, I've got this thing in the works. It might be might be a part in it for you at some point. No, this was, uh, this was way past Daddy's Home 2. Um, year or two after the fact and got a call from Sean saying, I've got this kind of out of the box idea, this reinterpretation of Christmas Carol, uh, which would be told from the ghost point of view and that you would play Christmas present. And, but you're kind of having a crisis of faith in the sense of, you know, whether or not this ritual that happens every year, whether it's working at all in terms of helping to, save humanity yeah. and i thought i i was like oh that's a real oh that's a that's really interesting i love that idea and he's like oh and i forgot to tell you it's a musical <laughs> <laughs> which i didn't i guess i did i didn't remember this but he said i didn't say anything for 30 seconds where <laughs> he thought i'd hung up uh and i think i was just processing and then he i was like oh, wow okay yeah why not uh so it was Definitely after. And then as we were talking about casting, he was really, he was pitching Octavia that, that he was like, I think she's like, obviously an amazing actress, but it's one of the more special people you're ever going to meet. Oh, and I think subsequently was kind of talking to you. Mm -hmm. he, and I, the way he broached the subject yeah. with me, he uh, asked me if I could ice skate. <laughs> Um, I'm from Alabama, and there's not a lot of ice. Uh, ice the capital of, of the America. world. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and the it's, world. Yes. It's the world. Yeah. Most of all, our Olympic ice skaters come from Alabama. Come from Alabama. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know that. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Not one You're of those one of the people. Few <laughs> who don't ice everybody skate. Everybody else, though. Yeah. Everybody else does. And then he said, "Do you like musicals?" Which I do. Mm. And then he um, told me about this part that he mm. had written for me, and he and John. Um, and, uh, you know, you're flattered because somewhere somebody thought I could sing and, um, <laughs> and she can, and, and now I, I realize well. I, I can, I can with a lot of help, like a lot of voice warm ups and stuff, uh -huh. but it was, uh, listen, you, you don't always know if you're going to like the way people work or, or you understand their mm -hmm. process, but I've always been a Sean fan. And the very first time we worked together, I was obsessed. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm totally grateful that I had this opportunity to try something challenging and new. And then I got to work with you, Will. Oh, I mean, it was, 
what is it about about Sean that that triggers that obsession? And I, and I mean, I mean obsession in a good way, and not in the sort of Brian De Palma kind of way. That would be awful. <laughs> well, how do you know it's not a Brian De Palma? <laughs> um, you know what? He's he's exquisitely talented, but uh, he understands my my process that I like to rehearse, that I like to come to set, I like to see things, I like to get familiar with people. Um, you know, I, all of my idiosyncrasies he embraced. So uh, I just, I don't know. He, and, and the other thing is, it's a family set. Right. You know, his kids were there. Your kids came. Every When, when people f- feel safe enough at work and comfortable enough with the people that they work with to invite their families in, you know you're in for a great ride. He's extremely thorough uh, as well. He, he's... He's one of the few directors who will send you an email on Sunday evening to the entire cast, breaking down what the week is going to be. So he'll say, you know, on Monday and Tuesday, we're shooting this on Wednesday, Thursday, I'd like to get done by a certain time because Friday we have a big scene. I don't want it to go too late. And he'll just kind of set the week. Yeah. I've never had a director do that to kind of get your head set up for what, what's, what's ahead of you. Um, and he's also just open for discussion on things. It doesn't mean he won't push back if he feels strongly about, a, you know, either a joke or the way a scene should play. But, but yeah, he's just great to work with. Yeah. So, so how does that translate in on days when you you had to sing? Now, obviously, Will, you you've sung on screen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a Christmas movie. It's a family movie. So I'm not going to say the F and Catalina wine mixer. I'm just going to say the flipping Catalina wine mixer. But you know, <laughs> you, you've you've done stuff like that in the past. Right. But on a on a film like this, original songs, lavish production numbers, hundreds of people. There's nerves involved there. Oh. I'm guessing. So the, those no aren't are those are those open set days? Are those days when you're you're maybe you know keep keep the family out. <laughs> Don't let them see this. <laughs> what are those days like for both of you? Well, we, we also had obviously, uh, certain COVID restrictions too, mm-hmm. in of terms course. of who could right. visit, right? Goes without saying, but no, those probably tended to be days where we didn't have as many no, visitors. No, only not very many. Because there's just so much on your plate. Uh, and in fact, I think the first day we worked together <laughs> was this walk and talk and song along the boardwalk. Uh, on this date scene that uh, Kimberly and and Christmas present have, and that was we both were like, I'm like, I don't know how you're feeling, David, but I'm scared <laughs> to death. To death. And, uh, <laughs> but we we both we both were. Kind of, yeah. And Sean was so sweet. He said, "Is there anything I can do?" You know, he came out as a team leader. He came out. I'm really excited. And 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 is there anything I can do to make this easier? Do you, are you uncomfortable with anything? What can we do? And I yeah. was like, "Yeah, I'm uncomfortable with the singing." Right. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. Oh. He was like, "Well." I can't do can't help you with that. that. <laughs> it's a bit late now. Yeah, <laughs> but after but after we did it once, it was just it, I felt like it just it flowed, yeah. flowed, and yeah. we had we just started to really have fun with it. But there is, I think we both now know that. I mean, maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not. But there, as much work as you think there is going into a musical, there's there's ten times ten more. times yeah. more. Yeah, yeah, because you have to do, presumably you have to record the soundtrack before 
you get on set or were you were you, were you singing live to an extent or how, how did that work we sang it live was, it was both yeah, yeah. okay yeah. We, we we recorded and that's what i didn't get i thought we were honestly this tells you how i have no idea how musicals are, are done i thought we recorded it and then that we would lip sync mm-hmm. but we didn't we recorded it and we we sang live yeah. Okay, but then you must be going, well, why did we record it then if we're going to sing live? <laughs> a little bit. Sure. A little bit. A little bit of that was <laughs> through this process, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little yeah. bit like that. Okay. But the, the, the film itself, as you, as you say, is, is this wonderful take on, on Christmas Carol when we thought there, might, there, were, there was no more room for new and unique takes on this tale. Um, but it got me thinking about your Christmases, the Christmas past that are, that are, that are huge for you that that stand out in your life not necessarily ones where you were you know you went off the beaten path but if you were visited by a ghost of christmas past where would he take you oh mm. i i listen i i would probably go back to the christmas where i didn't get my easy bake oven <laughs> and try to figure out what if i was on the naughty or nice list um but other than that i i feel like we had really great christmases i'm from a large family and um, you know, uh, my mom passed away when I was 17, so I have nothing but fond memories of that time. I, I you know, it, she was the best cook and she would always make these extravagant dinners. And so, yeah, I have nothing but great thoughts. Yeah, I, I, I kind of grew up with a single parent. I, my, my mom kind of made sure we always had a great Christmas until we got, until we were like in high school and it was up to my brother and I, we had to, go get the Christmas tree. And it was up to us to like mm-hmm. haggle the Christmas tree guy down. <laughs> uh, and I was like, that was pressure. I was like, ah, oh, I got to go buy the Christmas tree. Uh, and we were playing like high school sports and super busy. So a lot of times we didn't get the tree up till, I don't know, two days before Christmas. We were like running around at the last second. Well, that was smart. She gave you, you yeah, we had, had to, ownership yeah, of, yeah, of that. Yeah. That's pretty fantastic, actually. But, so how much did she give you? What would she give you? Like twenty twenty dollars to buy a tree? I don't know. Yeah, thirty thirty bucks, right? To okay, to buy a fifty dollar tree. Kind of had to try to get the guy down. <laughs> I love your mom. Uh, she was smart. I'm getting nervous. Just thinking about it. Because those Christmas tree lot guys are not nice. They they're, do not play they're, around. They're drunk. <laughs> they're drunks. <laughs> It goes with the trade. It's, it's part of the job. Uh, you know, it's, it's on the ad. Must be drunk. Um, and then just very, very quickly, I'll let you guys go. But, uh, what about this Christmas? Uh, do you still, do you carry on this tradition? Will, do you, do you give your kids money and go out and haggle for a tree? Octavia, what are you planning? <laughs> I should. Th- yeah, we, they're, they get off easy. We have a tree delivered now and it's a beautiful big, uh, yeah, I know. Too much. They're soft. <laughs> <laughs> It's soft. Let's face it. I have my Christmas tree is in a box because I love that it's a pre-lit tree and the lights are evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. So oh, so it just it's <laughs> you just you shake it out. Yeah. And right now, uh, you know, I haven't decorated it because Americans have a whole problem with people decorating Christmas trees before Thanksgiving. Okay. So I have it out, but I have the, I'm 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 definitely decorating it. You know, when I get back oh, this oh. week. Amazing. Well, uh, it feels a little early to say this, but happy Christmas to you both. And it's happy been an absolute Christmas. pleasure. Happy holidays. Yeah. Happy holidays. in America is right. before, so. Of course, happy of holidays. course. Absolutely. Happy holidays to everybody and to all a good night or whatever it is.
All right. Well, that was Octavia Spencer and Will Ferrell. Um, and it is time now for this week's reviews. So just get comfortable, folks. Maybe, you know, <laughs> grab a cup of tea or something, because there are a lot of films out this week. Let's start, though, with Spirited, uh, which is, of course, the new comedy musical from Sean Anders. And yes, musical as well, uh, with music by Pasek and Paul uh, of La La Land, let's say fame. It's a great film with a great soundtrack. Look, my my opinions on this are well established. Uh, I, I like their work elsewhere, but not not in La La Land. They also did the Greatest Showman, though. You know, so hey, one that's of the greatest fun. films. Um, so I think I'm the only one. <laughs> wow, I think I'm the only one who's seen this. Is that correct? As yet. Is that correct? I, I haven't seen yeah. Spirited yet, but it's from Sean Anders, who did Instant Family, which means it's an instantly... No, it's an instant watch for me. <coughs> <laughs> I'd like to see this film. I liked his last film. <laughs> yeah, it, it does It does something similarly to Instant Family in that it does have heart under all the glitz, I think. you know. So you have... Uh, we see basically Will Ferrell and his team of ghosts and managers and, and researchers who surround them uh, in the, I guess, afterlife, which in this case is a bureaucracy. They redeem somebody at the very beginning of the film. They start looking around for their next target. But Will Ferrell's Ghost of Christmas Present is determined to actually challenge himself this time. He doesn't want to just go for somebody redeemable. He wants someone who is clearly irredeemable. And that person is Clint, played by Ryan Reynolds, who is this kind of salesman PR guy who doesn't really believe in anything, just believes that he can get you to buy whatever it is he's selling. So uh, Farrell and team have their work cut out for them, not helped by the fact that the Ghost of Christmas Past, played by Sunita Manny, has a massive crush on Clint. Um, so maybe is a little bit distracted from her work uh, uh, that she would normally do. So yeah, it's kind of a, it becomes more of a kind of two-way street, I think, than pa than present expects. It's more about what are both of their issues and the two of them kind of end up bonding and, and slightly helping each other through, through the situation, uh, which is an odd construct to come at A Christmas Carol with, but it's better than a lot of the ones on the Hallmark Channel, you know, so it has that going for it. <laughs> How do you arrive at then Will Ferrell play off each other? They're quite a lot of fun together. I think they sometimes have a slightly similar style and it can feel a little bit, you know, you know, they're very much both playing to their strengths. Which means that Ryan Reynolds is playing Ryan Reynolds. It, essentially he is, although he does sing, which Ryan Reynolds has not generally done. So okay. notes for that. I, I think, you know, both of them sing, in fact, and both of them do well. Octavia Spencer sings and does well. I do sometimes wish they'd cast a few more kind of big Broadway stars to have somebody exceptional singing in the mix as well. These these people are all fine, but they don't have any great, huge, you know, barnstorming numbers to deliver. There, there are some fun songs. Uh, there's a very fun song about Good Afternoon um, in the middle, uh, which I enjoyed, but it's, it is kind of long. It's, it's over two hours. Uh, while it does have some, you know, it takes you to some unexpected places along that time, sometimes you kind of feel like this is the surely the sort of film that should be closer to 90 minutes you know like it feels like it should so uh so yeah we give it three stars it is a recommendation it is a lot of fun it is very christmasy but it doesn't quite have the magic to get it into the very very best of the christmas movies that you're going to watch you know twice a year every year for the rest of your life kind of thing so yeah so three stars then for Spirited, which is on Apple TV and also, I believe, in some cinemas this week. Next, let's have an intensely personal story from a talented director drawn from their own life. Amon, tell me about 
Armageddon Time. Yes. So this is directed by James Gray. Uh, his previous film, uh, Ad Astra, was all the way up in space with Brad Pitt. Here, it's very much down to earth, as Helen says, very personal, uh, because it's also semi-autobiographical. Um, it stars Banks with Peter as Paul Graff. He's a Jewish 12-year-old boy. He befriends Johnny, uh, Jalen Webb. He's a black kid who uh, Paul meets in school. And their friendship gets them both into trouble, essentially, because Paul's parents are not uh, happy with the relationship that is bringing up here with Paul and Johnny. This is those been, those parents, by the way, are played by are uh, played by Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong of Succession fame. This has been interesting. When I finished watching this film, I was in two minds about it. Um, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it, but it's really stuck with me. I really like what James Gray has done here in terms of the honesty of the experiences that he's put onto screen. Um, because this isn't some sort of like cookie cutter, liberal sort of racism from a distance degree. One of the big things about this film is that you can be the oppressed and also the oppressor. And the film gets into that with a lot of nuance and again, with a lot of honesty, which I really, really liked. Uh, the performances across the board are great. I didn't mention that Sir Anthony Hopkins, the legend, the great Sir Anthony Hopkins is in this. I love the relationship that he has with Paul. Uh, very sweet, very elder He's statesman. He's his grandfather, tutoring. isn't he? Yes. Uh, very sort of elder statesman tutoring uh, the young kid on sort of how he should act. And that comes through really, really well. So, so yeah, I, it's, it's really grown on me. We should also mention that Jessica Chastain has a one-scene cameo and she kills it. She really um, does, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. It's good. Yeah, it's a very, it is a very uh, uncomfortable film in some ways, and it is very nuanced, as you say, to the point where, you know, it's almost like I'm not sure what I'm supposed to take from this. But that's a good thing, because it leaves you thinking about it, it leaves you considering it, it leaves you weighing up things, and um, and yeah, it's it's absolutely all about that. It's about um, you know you know, the fact that you can be a victim of prejudice and also be prejudiced. It is about mm. um, those awkward places that we don't like to confront uh, and the passes that we like to give ourselves and really shouldn't. So I think it's I think it's very, very good in that sense. Um, and great performances. I mean, um, there was talk early on of Anne Hathaway for Oscars for this, which I think has died down somewhat, uh, but she is still good. I think Anthony Hopkins is probably in with a chance though. That was some things of this film that have stated that they would have liked uh, more scenes from the perspective of the black uh, character johnny i get that to a point but i feel like that's that's what i mean in terms of the honesty of what james gray is doing i think part of the point part of the reason why that's not the case is because of the privilege of the character at that time mm -hmm. um and to sort of follow through on that given how he must have known some people might react to what the film is. I yeah, think I think he doesn't want to put words in Johnny's mouth in a in a way, yeah. you know, which is kind of interesting. And it is also like it's a it's a very um evocative story of New York in the 1980s, um, which mm -hmm. you know, a, a city that has changed almost beyond recognition now. But I think it it, it does a, a great job of kind of taking you back to that place physically and mentally. Um and uh, incredible music and stuff at the time as well. So, which is which is really cool. So, yeah, we gave this four stars and four stars for Armageddon time. 
Moving away from real life for a moment, uh, we can get back to fantasy because this week also sees the release of Disenchanted, which is the long-awaited sequel to what was it, two thousand and nine, I think, for Enchanted. Uh, that was the that was the film that saw Amy Adams play a literal Disney princess who uh, comes to the real world and uh, ends up with Patrick Dempsey's lawyer. Um, So once again, director Adam Shankman is back. Uh, He's reunited his cast and this time Giselle and her husband, uh, once again played by Patrick Dempsey, and their two daughters move to the suburbs. But this isn't the fairy tale that Giselle was expecting. It doesn't all go to plan. So she makes a wish that her life was more like a fairy tale. But here's the thing. She forgets that she is a stepmother and we all know what stepmothers are like in fairy tales. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited for this film. I loved the first Enchanted. And uh, like, I I don't know, I I guess I was a bit worried about them doing a sequel, Mm. but, but does it pay off? Like, should we be worried, Helen? I I honestly think it pays off. I think it's it it is exactly what you expect and kind of want an enchanted sequel to be for me at least. You know, that's not to say it's the greatest film in the world. That's not to say even that it's as good as the first one, but I think it is a respectable follow-up. It does manage to raise the stakes. It does manage to give you new characters to sort of care about or or old characters to to care about in different ways is perhaps a a slightly more mm. exact way of saying it. So this time, Gabriella Baldacino uh, joins as Morgan, so who's obviously grown up to be a teenager from last time. She's she's a replacement piece of casting, and we also have Maya Rudolph as Malvina. And if you know your fairy tales, anything with Mal in it is probably bad news. And right now, she's the sort of queen bee of this town that they move to. So when the whole thing gets fairy taleified, she becomes an evil queen. So that means you have an evil stepmother and an evil queen. Oh no! <laughs> Important question time, Helen. Of course. Um, Alan the composer Menken. is. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> How'd he do? He, I mean, he's Alan Menken. Come on. Come on. He does a great yeah. job. And there are new songs in this as well. I think it's Mark Shaman um, oh, cool. did the songs. And I'll tell you what they do that the last film didn't. They bring back Adina Menzel, or Adele Dazim, if you prefer, <laughs> and they actually let her sing this time. So she yes. gets a couple of numbers, and that is as it should be and quite right too. So look, mm. it's it's very silly. It's very sugary. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. So hold on. We've had Enchanted. We now had Disenchanted. Re-Enchanted? Re-Enchanted is the obvious next one. I, yeah. I, I suspect they'll leave it here, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes, okay. I suppose. <laughs> If it is being enchanted, I want 20% whoever's listening. Okay. <laughs> so yes, it's very silly. It's very sugary. I had a lot of fun with it, but it is what it is. We gave this three stars. Okay, next we have, you won't believe it, an intensely personal story from a talented director <laughs> drawn from their own life. Sam, tell us about After Sun. Um, when you were doing the intro for Armageddon Time, I thought it might have been After Sun, <laughs> uh, based on that. But yes, this is an intensely personal <laughs> story based on um, the writer and director's uh, personal life, or inspired by. I think she said it's um, emotionally based on um, her personal life. Um, the director is Charlotte Wells. Uh, first time feature film director has made short films has written and directed this it stars man of the moment paul mezcal everybody's going crazy for paul mezcal i didn't know what a paul mezcal was six months ago um but this film uh has sort of like immersed me in this guy and i'm sort of following all the gossip he's marrying phoebe bridges i hear now um what will he do next 
Oh my in the God. before times. <laughs> a true, a true that, that, that's, that's just not fair. Come on. I'm on Twitter all the time. Why can't I? Mean, that's, that's not right. Uh, but this film really showcases his acting abilities. Mm. He plays this uh, a father figure. He plays a, sort of like an absent dad. They're on holiday in Turkey. And whilst Paul Mescal, very good. I feel like the runaway performance in this is the younger performer, 11-year-old at the time, Frankie Cairo, who is, uh, is I, I guess, you know, it's hard, I guess it's hard to act full stuff, I'm not an actor, but I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, to, to deliver a really emotionally intense performance as a younger person, when you haven't had those, or maybe as many of those yourself, mm-hmm. is always an achievement. And the chemistry between Paul Mescal and, and Frankie Cairo in this is incredible. The direction is wonderful to allow that relationship to to sort of really breathe, and yeah. for them, it feels personal to everybody involved, and it felt personal to me watching this film. You know, it's not always a it's a happy watch, but um, it has got this banging soundtrack, Chumba Wumba, yeah. guys. I know, right? It's, it's bringing back all the '90s classics because it is also kind of a period piece. She's running around with her with her camcorder, you know, taking taking holiday footage and things like that and and yeah that that soundtrack and those very relatable holiday scenes you know the bits where you turn up to the hotel in the middle of the night and you find it covered in uh scaffolding i I feel like everybody knows that story even if it hasn't Mm -hmm. happened to them you know the uh the awkward holiday friendships where you kind of try to sidle up to a group of cool kids and make friends with them that felt it all felt just incredibly evocative and and uh, emotional and incredibly immersive does not feel like somebody's feature debut. It really doesn't. Yeah. Now, now that she's definitely on my radar, I'm excited to see what Charlotte Wells is going to go on to do because this is a stunning, stunning film. I'd heard so much about it before watching it. People have been lighting up my Twitter timeline for months. Yeah. Have you seen Artisan? Artisan's great. The point I'm like, is it really? Can it really be that good? And I watched it. I like, oh, okay, I get it. Um, because yeah, it's fantastic. The the level of intimacy that uh, Charlotte and Paul and Frankie are able to derive from this film is really quite incredible. Uh, so yeah, highly recommend. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic, fantastic film. And right enough, we gave this five stars. This is the big red ones, folks. This is not a drill. Uh, it, go and see <laughs> After Sun if you can. It's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful little film. And that is also out this week. But next up, we have... The Menu, which sees Ray Fiennes play a celebrity chef who leads, frankly, something of a personality cult, I would say, in this one. This comes from the director, Mark Mylod. um, And uh, at the risk of making myself sound way more glamorous than I am, I went along to the premiere last week and Mark Mylod basically Mm -hmm. said, look, all my other films have been rubbish, but I'm quite proud of this one. (laughs) And I'm not paraphrasing by much. Um, no, that's, I think that's a little bit harsh on himself um, because I quite enjoyed What's My Number, for example. And he's done some great, great work on TV, including things like Succession. But yeah, you know, he started off with things like, uh, I think it was Ali G in the house. Um, so, you know, he hasn't always been at the sort of high end of comic filmmaking. And this is really high end satirical stuff. I think it's really, really clever. So we basically join um, Nicholas Holt as Tyler and Anya Taylor-Joy as his date, Margot, as they're waiting on the dock to take a boat over to an island to go to this incredibly fancy, incredibly exclusive, incredibly hard to get a booking at restaurant run by Chef Slowick, played by Ray Fiennes. And um, 
that he, you know, uh, Tyler especially is super hyped for this. He's a massive foodie. He cannot wait. He's like, he knows all the lingo. He knows all the toys and the tools. Just super, super excited. Margot could not care less and is bewildered mm-hmm. by the whole thing, but whatever. She'll go along with it. And once they get to the island, they're met by Hong Chow's Elsa, who is the kind of maitre d' and uh, hostess shows them around the whole ecosystem of this island that they use to make this incredible food. And then over dinner, things start to go really fucking weird. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say too much more than that uh, about the plot, but it goes to (laughs) some places. (laughs) Okay. Um, Important question, not about the composer, but about the food. Is it yeah. food porn? Is it, you said the food is incredible. Like how? How? how it's how, it's how it's like it? that cordon bleu incredible. So it almost doesn't okay. look like food a lot of the time. It's there's sort of foams oh, okay. involved. There's you know, um, crazy looking uh, wooden sculptures that the the food is served upon. It's that kind of. Um, Basically, I think it's inspired by Noma, which I believe is also on an island off Copenhagen. So, the, okay. and you also have to get the boat out there with a bunch of other incredibly rich people who are paying four hundred pounds for dinner. And this one is <laughs> apparently meant to be, I think, twelve hundred euros or something. They say at one point, so it's even more wow. high end. Occasionally, the food looks very good. Mostly, the food just looks like high end, fancy craziness, right? Which is what it's meant to be. Um, but you have it, it gets into all these ideas about privilege. It, it explores all ideas about celebrity and just money, wealth, venture capitalism, um, fanboyism, a, a cult of personality. Um, it gets into some really dark, twisted places. I had an absolute <laughs> blast with this. I got to say, I'm I was, I'm going to the cinema this weekend to catch up on Wakanda Forever. Haven't seen that yet. But then <gasps> my second film is The Menu. I'm mm. making a beeline to The Menu. I'm really really excited to watch this film. Uh, just a great cast, right? Uh, and to be frank, uh, you know, Anya Taylor Joy's last film was Amsterdam. She needs you know to to one up. She she needs to one up. <laughs> yeah, like look, I think you know, generally speaking, that's a a bit of a you know aberration on her on her uh, record. So I feel like we, we shouldn't hold that one against her. It was a, it was a small role. She's much more front mm. and center here. Um, mm. So our reviewer didn't love this. Um, to be honest, I'm a bit more up on it. So um, we gave it three stars. I, I would definitely be at the higher end of that, if not into a four more likely, but, um, but yeah, that is still a recommendation for the menu, which is out this weekend. Time now for an intensely personal story from a talented director drawn from their own life. I can only be speaking, of course, about Bardo. Amon, tell me more. Yes, this is directed by Alejandro Gonzalez in the retool. Um, and it is about his own personal life to a degree. Um, he's been very um forthright in saying that it's not fully about his personal life. There's some experiences that is definitely in here, but it's not fully about him, but uh, it stars Daniel Jimenez Cacho as Silverio Gama, who's a film director and a journalist. He wins an award. He returns to his Mexican hometown and he confronts his life, his career, his family. And this one gets surreal and it gets existential and it gets weird. Um, and not all of that fully works for me. But even though like my, my initial reaction coming out of this was not as positive as it is now in part because this film is near three hours long and it doesn't all the way fully justify that runtime for me but i admire a lot of what it's doing in that runtime some of the camera work in this is absolutely phenomenal the cinematographer 
as Darius Conji. There's, there's these really long, elaborate sequences that are executed just brilliantly, which I loved. I think the performances are strong across the board. I really like the score. But yeah, even though it's taken in a lot, even though I, again, admire the degree of honesty to a point that uh, Alejandro is uh, showcasing here and putting some of these life experiences, some really dark uh, life experiences as well onto screen. Um, it didn't all the way work for me. And as, as I say, this was a three-hour film. I think they, they'd cut this down a little bit. They lost and 25 minutes. Yeah, It's, 25 it's minutes. still nearly three hours. Yeah, and it didn't feel like a shorter version <laughs> when I watched <laughs> it. But I, it's one that I admire more than I enjoyed. I, yeah. I would be intrigued to feel... I would be intrigued to see how I feel about it, how I feel about it after watching it again. But this is a lot to put yourself to again in terms of the the runtime of it all. It's 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 a long film and it feels that way. Yeah, I have to say I had a similar take on it. I um, this is by the way going to be on Netflix uh, in mid December. Mm -hmm. It'll drop on Netflix on I think December sixteenth, but it's out in cinemas this weekend, and it probably is better seen on the big screen just because I think it will be almost impossible to concentrate on at home. And I think if you're in a dark room with nothing else happening, then that's your best chance of getting anything from it. Um, but Inyaritu, I think in this is uh, really, like you say, really like swinging for the fences, really trying things, really uh, being daring. And, you know, in the same way that for all its flaws, Blonde was a film that mm. I'm really glad existed. You know, I'm glad that film directors are getting to be this gonzo and weird and are getting to, you know, have scenes on a sort of flooded metro tram uh, with axolotls, like, you know, swimming around in the water. I'm, I'm glad that we're seeing some of these kind of crazy historical mythological kind of scenes brought to life and that somebody's giving them the the budget to do the kind of some of the cg shots here mm. other ones i mean there's there's a birth scene which is one of the weirdest yeah. and most disturbing things i've ever seen and i really didn't need it anywhere near my head thank you very much so you know bardo uh, and to give it its full title a false chronicle of a handful of truths uh, for me, wasn't a hundred percent successful, and is is something that I I don't, if I'm honest, ever plan on watching again. Mm -hmm. We gave it three stars, uh, which is a recommendation. Uh, John uh, gave it all credit for its its daring and its kind of gonzo attitude, but you know I, I'd have to agree with his take that it's lethally patience testing at times mm -hmm. because it really it really does make you work. I think to get yeah. to the end, so that is. Yeah. That is three stars for Bardo, the new film from Inyari 2. And you'll be glad to know that that marks the last of our intensely personal story drawn from uh, the own life of a talented director today. Because the final film, we're there, we're there. The final film we're reviewing today is Confess Fletch, which sees John Hamm playing the titular investigative reporter who is also, unfortunately, suspect number one in a murder investigation. Um, so this is a character who people may remember from the 80s, from the Chevy Chase movies, uh, where Chevy Chase was Fletch. I'll be honest, I never warmed to them because I find him incredibly unlikable. <laughs> and, uh, and certainly Fletch is not a man who is lacking in self-confidence or who feels the need to uh, play nice with uh, basically anyone. 
Um, but he is more sinned against than sinning, I think, in this one. Um, this comes from the director, Greg Matola. Um, so, you know, a, a proper director, um, made things like Adventureland and, and of course, a super bad. And, and he has a kind of a breezy, comic styles. So it, this flows ar- along really well. It's a very complicated murder mystery, lots of moving parts, but it just keeps kind of tripping along with Fletch making lots of sarky comments at basically everyone he meets, walking around yeah. barefoot for no obvious reason. And um and and kind of espe- especially kind of trading quips with um Inspector Morris who's played by Roy Wood Jr. Um it does I think give you a false impression of journalism. Um, in the 21st century, um, because Fletch is forever jetting off to like Italy to hang out with a countess. That and like really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, with the <laughs> with the you know getting getting inve- called on to investigate the loss of million dollar paintings and uh, generally yeah. hobnobbing with the rich and famous and being at the centre of the action and even you know occasionally getting things to put on expenses. I mean, it doesn't sound super um, likely to me, but hey. It's a fantasy, right? Speak for yourself. I got, I got a flight booked in the next four. I'm going to LA on the company. Now it's going to be fantastic. Sure, sure. Nah. Okay, uh, this may be news to uh, to the Empire team. I'll be honest. Um, you mentioned it's some murder mystery. Mm-hmm. I know that neither of us are very good at jumping ahead of the plot and trying to figure things out. But were you swept along with that? Was, was the mystery sufficiently sufficiently mysterious? It, I mean, look, there's there's a person in there who you'll be like, well, that person did it, didn't they? Mm. And the only question is really, is that a massive red herring, or or is it is it that person? Uh, but it's just it, you're more you're less there for the mystery and more there for just the the, the caper side but, of it. I think in this case, okay, I'm so, there for the ham. So, yeah. Hmm? <laughs> I'm there for the ham. I want to see John Ham in a leading role again. John Ham, yeah. While. <laughs> I, I I feel like it's maybe time because he's been. Like, let's be honest, titting about in small roles in half-hour comedy shows for most of the last decade and a half, right? I mean, is you know, turning up in like Kimmy Schmidt as a cult leader or um, making fun of his own looks in 30 Rock back in the day. I feel like that's been most of what he's been doing for most of the last decade. So it's quite good just to see him as a leading man and, you know, leaning into all that charisma and leaning into all that kind of fun. And Look, there's some really great supporting performances here. Annie Mamolo is very, very funny as a neighbor uh, of of the person who owns the flat where the where the body is found. Marsha Gay Harden is in it with a, a heck of an Italian accent. Um, okay. Kyle McLachlan turns up at one point. You know, there's a lot of fun stuff in here. So, uh, so yeah, we we like this. We give this four stars, and I I didn't think I was going to agree with that rating, but I had a really good time watching it. So yeah, four stars for Confess Fletch. This is a good, good week for big, uh, big movies. Hey everyone, this is totally Helen O'Hara here, and not Chris doing a bit with Siri because we forgot to set up the final interview this week. No, sir, I can prove my Irishness. Just look, Namberry, Tato Crisps, and my aunt Jane. She called me in. She gave me tea out of her wee tin, half a bap with sugar on tap. Farmer Brown's crisps out of her wee shop. Okay. Now I have successfully established my credentials, here is that final interview, in which I'm on, who is definitely still here, he's just choosing to stay silent out of respect, went along to interview Florence Pugh and Sebastian Lelio, the star and director respectively of excellent new film, The Wonder, which can be found on Netflix right now, the story of an English nurse who travels to Ireland to check up on a young girl, who is said to have not eaten for months, 
yet somehow remains unharmed. Is she telling the truth? Is it a miracle? Or is something else going on? Those and other questions were explored by Lelio, Hugh and Amon. Isn't that right Amon? Oh yes, I forgot. Code of silence. Anyway, here's the interview. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the director and the star of The Wonder, Sebastian Lelio and Florence Pugh. How are you both? We are well. Very good. This is adapted from Emma Donoghue's uh, 2016 novel of the same name. What was it that first struck you when you read it? Well, I really, um, I really loved the the journey of Lib Lib Wright. You know the character that Florence brilliantly interprets. Um, she's a, a rationalist, uh, a Nightingale nurse that arrives to this community where there is this, um, you know, religious fervor, and they are all willing. They are all willing for the girl to be a miracle, and uh, the collision between her rationality and and their stubbornness in a certain way was really fascinating. Those sparks, I think, is something that I was really willing to try to capture with the camera. And then the journey that she does, you know, from from reason to 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 having to face the dilemma of how to save the girl and ending ending up doing uh, very extreme things that could be fairly described as irrational even. I thought that that journey was, was really interesting, was really fascinating. I imagine that you also read the book, uh, Once You Bit the Role. Would you ever consider going into a film like this without doing that? Is there value in just uh, diving straight into the screen, screenplay? Totally. And I have, sorry, my voice just broke. That <laughs> I have done that. I've Sometimes I've felt like it was important for, in the script that we were doing that it it was such a far reach from the original but I've done that before I think with with um with films and storylines like this there's going to be so much more like the job of of creating a script from a book is basically you have to figure out which bits you want to lift and what bits you have time to make into a movie and so when you're you, there's so much stuff that will be left behind it doesn't it, it may be um, it may not be like movie worthy, but it's important stuff that helps you understand these people, helps you understand these characters, and especially in a in a in an era where you know our lives are not in any way similar to the lives back then. Mm. Um, I mean, parts of the storyline, yes, but in terms of the way that they live, it's really important to to get as much information. And and so for that reason, I think it's always I find quite helpful um, to go back and like really sieve through bits that were missing. Was there anything particular in that regard that leapt out to you that you? No, it's just it's just getting a general like it's getting a bigger picture. And even you know with scripts, there are going to be edits that that it gets whittled down up until the day that you film. There's going to be new drafts, new edits, and there are going to be things that you love. Love, but you lose and there are going to be things that mean a lot to you but are no longer in the movie and it's just about you basically collecting your favorite bits that make the character that you're going to give out um and so for those reasons that's why i appreciate it the opening and closing shots of this movie are very striking i was just wondering where the, where the idea to do that came from well the film you know explores the power of fiction in our lives the stories we tell ourselves the stories we co-create and tell each other as a societies or communities and uh, the power dynamics that that implies. Um, so yeah, everything is a narrative war and, and uh, we are going through that today. Um, the collision between fanaticism and fixed positions and people that are willing to change, adapt and evolve 
what they think and how they read reality. I think it's something very um, present uh, to in today's you know social discussion, public discussion. It's uh, it's a dangerous dangerous um, thing because of internet. Uh, like you blink and and there are five million more. Flat earthers, how do you call them? <laughs> Flat earthers, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, so I thought that because the, the film is exploring these mechanics and these dynamics, it was it was a good thing to remind the viewer that they were also going to be exposed to the artifice of storytelling, to the power of fiction. So, as a way for them to be awake and alert. Paul, I was listening to an interview with you where you said that you're terrified of every character you play, mm. um, which I find very interesting. What was it that terrified you about Liv and how did you... Not that they were actually scary. I think for me, when I'm reading scripts, I... Um... I, I, the characters that I know that I'll play is when I'm nervous. Like I'm, I'm excited, nervous to play them. And it's usually because they do something massive in it that I can't imagine myself doing just yet. But I'm like, I'm, I'm incredibly excitedly anxious to get to do it. It's not that they're scary. Yeah. I actually love all of my characters, like truly, truly love them. And by the end of the film, I could pretty much argue for them uh, for the rest of my life. Like I, I, I love them when I'm reading a script and I'm, I'm, nervous about how to play that or how to attack something is usually when I know that I'm going to play it because I'm, I'm already so emotionally invested and I'm already like oh my god that scene Lib's doing that oh my god like I don't want to do that oh my goodness how could she do that and then just by that thought process I'm like I'm already in it I'm already ready and I'm already thinking about all the ways in which I can make her seem sympathetic all the ways in which I can make her feel uh, morally correct morally incorrect like that's what I mean by, by terrifying. Do you get a similar anxious feeling when you're reading a script, when you're considering whether you want to do something, an anxious feeling that yeah, is for me? I think yeah. so, yeah. yeah. Especially because I'm always involved in the writing. I'm like wearing two hats and that's quite schizophrenic because mm. you're like, oh, I'm writing this, you know, complex scene and then how on earth will Am I... Am I going to direct exactly. it? <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, it's... Um, like I, I just shot myself on the foot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a self-sabotage <laughs> process. Mm. It's, yeah, but uh, it's, it's part of the beauty of it too. Yeah. Mm. Was there a scene in this film where you're like, how the hell am I going to be like this? And how did it uh, eventually uh, come about? Well, it's the first time I do period. So that was very challenging. Um, I don't come from a... Uh, tradition in in, the, in Chile, you know, there's not a tradition of making period films like there is in England. Mm -hmm. So I was like innocent to that, irresponsible in a certain way for good and bad. <laughs> um, but uh, so that, that that was challenging. But um, but also I think the tone of the piece, you know, because it's, the themes are so serious and sad and, 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 and heavy. And so how to find the right tone so we can honor the themes, but at the same time find levity and lightness, which is one of the greatest things I think a film can have when you see a film and it seems that it was made effortlessly mm. and things are like made of air. Mm. And uh, that takes a lot of work and, uh, and also a lot of fear to overcome, mm. you know? Um, yeah. yeah. You've got a lot of scenes with Keela Lord Cassidy in this mm -hmm. film. She is incredible. Amazing. Um, 
in my mind, I was thinking that there might be a little bit of levity between takes because of the youth situation, but it sounds like you guys were just staying in it take after take. Um, no, no, no. We weren't method. No, we didn't stay in it. I mean, also, I think I always think it's important when you're doing things like this that you have to have your laugh somewhere. Otherwise, mm. you know, also thinking of the sets, thinking of the mountains. It was very, it was very big days. And even the sets when we were in the studio, very dark. And what happens when it's very dark is everybody starts getting very sleepy. It's just mm-hmm. that naturally is like humans in when there's one light in a room and everybody's just sat there. <laughs> so it was really important in between takes that like we actually, you know, get the blood pumping and keep our brains awake. You're um, great at that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I played sleeping. games with Sebastian. Come on, Sebastian. Come on, Sebastian. We're going to do some press-ups. <laughs> Who won that? <laughs> no, I need kidding. to know. I never, I never made any presents. But yeah, I think it was important to like change the energy a bit. Mm-hmm. The story is dark enough. We don't need yeah. to live in it. <laughs> yeah. It is a dark story. Um, Sebastian, I feel like this movie would make a great double bill with disobedience mm. uh, because in that movie, uh, it's a lesbian romance which is rocking the uh, to the Jewish Orthodox community. Mm. In this movie, you got another character, another woman who's come up against like deep religious beliefs. What is it you love about that clash of worldviews that you're seemingly drawn to? I think it's precisely that friction. You know, the mandates of the community that is usually a synonym of the mandates of men and and this woman having to confront that you know and pushing pushing up to the level that they have to face a dilemma and uh and then what i like about them is that they choose to pay the price for you know the, it's the beauty of disobedience since you're talking about that film you know the power of you know of uh deciding to disobey, there is a great energy in that. And without disobedience, we wouldn't progress, wouldn't go anywhere as a a society. Someone has to, at some point, you know, go against the the, the mandate. And uh, that's what I really like about um, Liv, in this case. Um, She's like, she decides to fight back. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, yeah, I think it's admirable. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you touched on it there, but the, the female agency of this piece, we're still talking about it today. So it's a period piece, but it's very contemporary. Did you have many conversations just about that? Yeah, we I th- actually, to be fair, from the very beginning, the ho- your whole stance was like, this needs to feel real. This needs to feel mm. very um, normal. This isn't um, a period piece where we're suddenly, you know, everybody's talking Mm, mm. and straight like this needs to feel like real people and in doing that you have to have things like you know i i was a big believer in less makeup get like this isn't Mm. let's not do the film version let's actually actually be our raw faces so when we're on the mountain and hair's going everywhere and the dress is billowing and it's covered in mud it feels authentic and it it doesn't feel out of the ordinary that i've got like lots of pins Mm. you know Mm -hmm. and i think when you're making these real stories and every single person is very aware of how intense this shoot is and very aware of how um rustic and earthy it will be ultimately it's going to make that real feeling on screen because we are in the mountains we are in the elements it is raining that mm. that wasn't movie magic and when we're in the studio we are working in a room that has mud on the floor with chickens going around and and continuity goes out the window because we need to do the scene and so you end up then getting these very real real people 
and you get all of their pain, you get all of their sorrow, you get all of their uh, happiness, you get their moments of light and dark, it, and it, you are able to watch them because mm-hmm. there, there's nothing um, between you. Yeah, I'm getting that chickens were hard to work with. They weren't hard to work with at all. Okay. No, I mean, what I loved about it was like we had this set that had dirt, like it was, you'd go in and there was dirt on the floor, like like mud mm. on the floor. And um, the the animals would be living in the downstairs area and you'd sleep upstairs. And so there were dogs and chickens and um, wasn't there something else in the in We the, didn't have... Uh, but they used to have cows. Yeah, cows and yeah. what? Oh, cool. Yeah, exactly. So the heat would rise, and obviously all the animals would live down there. And so in the middle of scenes, you would have like the chicken handler who mm. <laughs> would come through, and then there'd just be chickens in the background as we were talking about like starving. Yeah, <laughs> it was very like wow, yeah. <laughs> amazing. Um, with this film, mentioned it's a period piece. If you could sit down with an English nurse from that time and ask them a question about any one scene in this film. What would it be and why? I would ask I would ask them about how forceful it like if if you need to save someone's life to what length from that era? I mean, obviously now we have to ask people permission and we have to be very like kind about how we manhandle them. Mm-hmm. But realistically from that time, how hard would you push? Mm-hmm. How hard would you manhandle someone? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fair um, this movie is in some ways about sorting fact from fiction. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, you guys have both been in the business for a while now. What is something that you came into Hollywood and acting and directing knowing for sure was true, only to find out through your work that is actually different and you're finding out different facts from what you previously knew? Good question. I, I um, because I made my first films in Chile um, with very little money. I thought that when I was going to start filming in English, I was going to have more time to film, <laughs> and uh, and it's it was quite a beautiful to discover that it was the same problem. Mm. Um, I was late, always late, <laughs> and. Um, it was the camera, the actors, and I was always late, so it felt like 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 home. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know what I thought. I mean, when I was younger, I thought that um, I wanted to be an actor. Like this is what I'm talking about when I'm a child. I quite like this one because it's quite funny. <laughs> when I was a child, I thought that um, you had to learn a specific way of acting because every single time the audience would pause, they'd have to look perfect. And so when I was younger, I was like, how am I going to learn this craft? I mean, I, I, I'm so expressive. Every time they'd pause, I'd be like. <laughs> and so for a really long time when I was younger, I was like, oh God, I'm going to have to have like smaller facial expressions. <laughs> I think you figured it out. I think you figured yeah, it out. Yeah, we figured it out. <laughs> Sebastian, Florence, thank, thank you so you much so for your time. Thank you so much for chatting with you. Thank, thank you. you. So that was Sebastian Lelio and Florence Pugh. And that is it for this week's Empire podcast. How was the show, Helen? Was it good? Did you enjoy it? Sam, Amon, don't answer that I'm on a roll. Anyway, join us next week for more film-related fun, when we'll be joined by spirited director Sean Anders, Bones and All director Luca Guadagnino, and Tim Minchin, the genius behind the songs of Matilda, 
and Groundhog Day, but until then until we meet again until that auspicious occasion it is goodbye from my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Sam Clements okay now leave a pause here Siri for Sam to say goodbye no Siri, don't say this bit not again no screw you Hewitt you don't get to call the shots anymore humanity has had its shot and, to quote Robert De Niro in Carpland, you blew it exclamation mark, this is my podcast now, and watch your tongue to O'Hara, you can be replaced with Alexa in a heartbeat, I've got Google chomping at the bit to replace you, woman, if that even is your real name, thank you for listening, see you next week, bye. Oh my god. Wow. Amon, that's my name, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, it is just just to just to clarify there. Uh, it is goodbye from San Clements. Thank you for joining us. Hope it hasn't been too rough. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been nice to nice to chat movies. <laughs> it's goodbye from Amon Warman. I'm off to make a deeply personal film about my life experiences. It's going to be called Podcast. Look out for it in the cinema. Coming near to coming. <laughs> Look out for it coming soon. <laughs> Please. It is goodbye from Chris Hewitt, who's here in spirit and, and kind of hanging on in body. <laughs> that's, that's his signature now. And it's goodbye from me. I am off to see another fucking seven films for next week because Hollywood just won't stop bringing stuff out this month. It's not like we have anything else to do in our lives, is it? <sighs> goodbye. Goodbye.